Well, we are in one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible this morning. This is a passage that's probably been quoted in just about every Christian wedding that I've ever been to anyway. Um, and, and for good reason. This, Kent Hughes says, uh, says that this text is the deep well from which all biblical teaching on the covenant of marriage is drawn. And, and so it's appropriate that this would be so fundamental to, to wedding ceremonies. Now that said, I realize that sermons on marriage tend to draw a wide range of thoughts and feelings and expectations and um, responses, and so I'm mindful of that this morning. Some of you probably dread sermons on marriage um, for different reasons, perhaps because of of just profound disappointments and deep disappointments and pain uh, that you've experienced in marriage in the past or even in the present. Maybe you've endured the, is the blatant vandalism of uh, the marriage covenant by your spouse. Maybe your dreams of a happy and healthy marriage and that expectation that's just been all just obliterated uh, over the years. Others are widows, and so you've, you've watched the death of your spouse. And, and, and so a sermon like this can bring to the surface a mix of, again, thoughts and feelings and, and sadness, guilt, joy, regret. All of these things can kind of swirl around, and, and so I'm mindful of that. Others of you are, are single and, and not married yet. We are, all, we are all single for some part of our lives, but some of you remain single and maybe... For some of you, you're, you're completely content in that and, and, and you see that as a gift from God and to, to, for unhindered uh, devotion and work for the Lord. Others of you are, you know, you, you are content, but you would desire to be married. And I know that can, can make a message like this it hopeful, but also hard at the same time, and so I'm aware of that. Um, others of you aren't dreading a sermon like this, but you are actually excited for it. And that scares me just as much. Uh, because sometimes we can be excited, but not for the right reasons, not for the best reasons. Um, you, can, you can hear a sermon on marriage and be looking to, to stockpile ammunition, um, at which you'll direct towards your spouse. And I have seen this happen, and I, I know that's a potential that has potential, and use it against somebody or against another couple or something like that. Or you may think you hear a sermon like that, and you think, "Oh, here I get some ammo to fight the culture wars." And so we we think we we marriage is for some Christians little more than a battleground for fighting the world, and that's the way it's often. Uh, spoken about, written about in Christian circles even today because you think of gay marriage and you, you see celebrity marriages, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth marriage and it's in shambles and we, we poke fun at that and you think of all the stuff in society that goes against God's design and so you love to hear sermons that denounce and renounce that kind of thing. And here's my prayer that if that's, if that's a temptation for you, I, I prayer is that we'll love marriage, but love it for the right reasons. And that we won't just love the idea of marriage, but that we'll actually love God's good design for marriage. And if you are married, love the person that God has given you in marriage. Um, another needed word in the outs, at the outset, I think, is, is there are no perfect marriages in this church. 
or any church. There are no perfect marriages. There was a perfect marriage, but it didn't last, and we'll see that. There will be a truly perfect marriage, and it will last for eternity. And so we will all be joined in marriage to Christ. But with sin's entrance into the world, that we're going to start to see that next week in Genesis chapter 3, we, we've been building to this point. With sin's entrance into the world, it's, it's like gravel was thrown into the machine, machinery of marriage. And it's never been the same. And so that will be very apparent. Um, and it is in our own experience. We see this. In God's mercy, many couples in this church have messy, flawed, but joyful marriages. And I thank God for that. And, and we get to have a taste of God's good design for marriage. But even those marriages are deeply and profoundly impacted by sin. If you don't believe that, just ask your spouse and they'll, they'll fill you in. But I certainly don't want to pretend to know where everyone is at this morning when we're talking about companionship in general or marriage in particular. But I, I know there again are all kinds of circumstances and experiences, hard and happy ones that are represented in this room. And beyond that, there are all kinds of questions that come up when we begin to think about God's design for marriage and the wider cultural context in which we live But listen, Moses isn't addressing everything here, and neither will I. He's not addressing it directly. I'm not saying there aren't implications, but he's not addressing singleness for the sake of the kingdom like Paul does in 2 Corinthians 7. He's not addressing issues of divorce. He's not addressing abuse in the marriage. He's not addressing uh, marriage to an unbeliever. He's not addressing homosexuality. That's not in the purview of what we find here in Genesis 2. Instead, God is giving us His design for companionship and marriage from the beginning, before the fall. And, and so don't be surprised or disappointed if I don't speak directly to the greatest, maybe the struggle that you're, you're working through right now. And I, this is not going to be a self-help message that answers all of the questions and tell me what to do about this. There's just no way uh, that we can do that, and I don't think that's the, the greatest need this morning. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of how varied and deep difficulties can run related to marriage on this side of the curse. But I, I, my prayer has been, has been this week that, that you and I will be able to, to see a good word from God here in this passage, no matter what our particular situation is. That I, I, and, and so I urge you not to react negatively against God's good design. React against sin, yes. But don't react against God's design. That's my plea. Uh, Cherish what God intended for marriage in the beginning. Love what He loves. And yes, hate what He hates. Sin. But stay open to what God's design for marriage is about. And try, try not to view God's design through the lens of your own circumstances. Try to view your own circumstances and experiences through the lens of God's design. You understand? We good? Alright, well let's, let's move forward. And, and so we remember the context of what we're seeing here. I realize some of you may not have been with us all along, but we've been working our way through the, these early chapters of Genesis here. And so we talked about this last week. It's as if, it's as if Moses, Moses took, a, took a digital photo of the creation week, the first seven days of creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through 
to verse 3. And so now in, in verse 4 and following of chapter 2, through the end of the chapter, he's, he's zooming in on day 6. You know, we're kind of spreading his fingers out and, and zooming in on this one day of creation, expanding it. And so last week we saw God forming the first man out of the dust of the ground and, and placing him in this garden that's just full of all kinds of beauty and, and bounty. It's just this amazing, idyllic environment. And he places man in this garden. But as we're going to see, and we already read, there's still something missing. Um, and so, the last two pieces of the pre-fall puzzle are put on the table today for us. And let's, let's look at each of them. So we'll see two, two of those, two, two final components of this pre-fall world this morning. And the first one is this. Is that the God, it will see the God-designed need for compa- companionship. The God-designed need for companionship. So when I say the need for companionship, again, I, I just I hate to go back here again, but or, or for marriage even, I, I don't want to imply that if you're single, that means somehow that you are incomplete or you're you're deficient in some way. Or that's not it at all. Far from it. As an image bearer of God, all of us are made for relationship, for community. But you can fully experience that in, in singleness and a family, and a church, with friends. and so. But the fact remains that most people will, at some point, be married in their life. And in any case, back to Genesis 2, Adam's the only human alive, so there is need for Eve. And, and so there's this great need for companionship. Look at verse 18 again with me. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. Now that should just kind of jar us a little bit. I realize you're very familiar. I could have, you could have filled in the blank there. It is not good, what? For man to be alone. You've heard this so many times. But just think about the flow of what we've seen so far in, the, in Genesis 1 and 2. So far, all we've, heard, all we've heard is, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. And then here, in verse 18, very emphatically in the Hebrew, the, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, this is His statement, his evaluation. And so in the Hebrew it would be more like, not good is it for man to be alone. It's very strong. So you have this sinless man in perfect fellowship with God in this idyllic environment, garden environment, with everything that he wants for his enjoyment. What could not be good about that? I mean, isn't that enough? Not according to God. It's God's estimation. He's the one that says it's not good. Remember, we're, we're zoomed in on day six. And so, by the end of day six, it will be very good. But, but here, in the middle, there's this one, not a defect, but this deficiency. And so, why, why would God say that? Why would He make this evaluation? It's not good for man to be alone. Well, because of who God is. God has eternally existed in this perfectly happy and holy community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and he, he is, God has never been a solitary being. He is, he, is, he is a corporately happy being. And so here He makes man, human beings, in His image. And His design is to make them, we saw this in Genesis 1, male and female, in, in community with a like person, to, to reflect that image. Of his. And so this is about you. It's not good 
Keep going in verse 18. It's not good that man should be alone. Therefore, I will make a helper fit for him. I'll just break that little phrase down quickly. Just the word fit, or some of your translations may say suitable, uh, something like that. It just the idea is it's, it, this is a helper that's corresponding to him. This, this woman would be a corresponding counterpart. Like him, equal to him, but also different from him. We'll open that up a little more. And, and this is going to be a, a fit or suitable helper. Now, we see helper. And to our modern ears, that probably sounds a little condescending and maybe even demeaning, uh, patronizing. I don't know how it sounds to you, but it, it, it kind of sounds like God has made Adam to go around the garden and pick up his dirty socks or something like that. Or Adam, she's in there making his dinner while he's sitting in the easy chair watching watching the evening news or something like that. That's, that's not it at all. This, this word has nothing to do with subservience or inferiority. That's not it at all. And you know how I know that? This, this word helper, it's used 19 times in the Old Testament. 16 of those 19 times, it's used of God. God is our helper. The Lord is our helper. Same word over and over in the Psalms. You see, the God, God is our help. And so the, the, so the fact that God Himself is our helper makes it clear that this, is, this is, it can, cannot be interpreted as being some kind of demeaning role, subservient role. In fact, this shows her essential dignity as a human being. This, this woman makes this necessary contribution to man. Without the woman, man is incomplete. He is not good. And to that I say, Amen. Uh, but he... This is this woman is this, is this God will provide this this compatible uh, corresponding to complement to the man. So this is what so God makes the evaluation. It's not good. Therefore, I will make a helper fit for him. And so then we expect to read. So God made a helper fit for Adam. But that's not what we see. Uh, before the woman ever comes into the picture, God does something that I think if you were just reading this for the first time, it would seem a little strange to us. Like, why, why, why is this happening? He lets, he lets Adam name all the animals there in verses 19 and 20. So this naming process is, is kind of the first recorded act of Adam's dominion that he's been called by God to exercise. Remember Genesis 1, 26, 28, you're to, you're to, to subdue the earth and exercise dominion over all that, all that God has made. And so here, God entrusts to Adam as his representative this, this authority to give names to all of the animals uh, that God made. And so God brings all of these animals to Adam and that must have been quite a sight. I don't know. I uh, wish there was video footage of this, but it would be pretty fascinating to see. All we know again about it, we don't have a lot of details because the point is not for us to understand exactly what this process was, but we know what's revealed. I think it was probably a little bit different than Bob Dylan said it was. If you know the song, um, he get, man gave name to the all, all the. I'm not going to sing it, but I will say I'll, I'll give you a couple lines for those of you who aren't familiar with this song. Uh, he saw an animal up on a hill chewing up so much grass until she was filled. He saw milk coming out but didn't know how. Ah, oh, I think I'll name it a cow. Um, 
Or he saw an animal leaving a muddy trail, really dirty face and curly tail. He wasn't too small and he wasn't too big. Ah, I think I'll name, I'll call it a pig. It's probably a little bit different than that. Um, but, but here he is. He's naming all these animals. I don't doubt that he probably enjoyed that process, enjoyed seeing all of these creatures that the Lord God has made. And, but yet when Adam's done with this incredible task, the text says, for Adam, verse 20, there was not found a helper fit for him. So there's, God says, I'll make one, I'll provide one, but with all of those animals, there's not one fit for him. Again, just think about the odd flow of this text. God says, look, it's not good for Adam, for man to be alone. He needs a helper who corresponds to him. So, uh, bring the animals in. <laughs> Line them up. I mean, it's it's strange. So Adam names them all, and he gets down to the very last ones. And what what is this all about? What is God doing? Why why go through this process? I think the best understanding is that God is helping Adam to see his need for this counterpart. He he he's awakening in Adam this strong sense of need. God knows it. God has already made the evaluation. It's not good. And he, he wants Adam to know that. That he needs someone who is human, who's like him, but also different from him. A corresponding helper. And so as Adam sees all these animals and names all these animals that come before him, as he sees them all in pairs, males and females, he becomes very aware of the fact that he has no corresponding partner. There's no female counterpart to him. So, notice what the text does not say next. It doesn't say, then Adam said to God, I have some strange feeling about this after all of this that I've seen and heard today. What, I feel like something's missing. What should we do about it, God? That's not what you read. No, the reality is that God Himself and God alone takes the initiative here. I mean, what's, what's about to happen is all of divine grace. It's not Adam's idea. He's not even involved in it. And so divine initiative, as we'll see as we walk through this text, it takes center stage in this passage, throughout this passage. I mean, just notice what we've already seen and what we will see. God is the one who makes the evaluation. God is the one who states the need. God is the one who forms the plan. God brings the animals. God puts Adam to sleep. God takes the rib. God fashions it. God brings the woman. It's just God. It's God. It's God. It's all, it's all His doing. Eve is formed while Adam slept. He didn't get any say in the matter. It's not like he got to place an order. I'd like her to be 5'6", and you know, brown hair, and blue eyes, and freckles. I mean, there's nothing like that. This is all God's doing. The gift of His wife comes from God by His grace. And so God puts him into this deep sleep, anesthetizes him. And then, and then He takes one of Adam's ribs from his side, seals it back up. Now what's the significance of the rib? There's all kinds of crazy stuff out here that everybody's trying to explain why it's the rib and not some other body part or something like that. I don't know. I think it's primarily just showing that this wife is part of him. He's equal, equal with him, not some lower creation. And, and, and Paul later tells the Ephesians, we read this a moment ago, a husband is to love his wife as his own body, as his own flesh. 
I think this is rooted in this account. But then verse 22. And so in the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. He made into a woman. That's a different word than the word create that we saw in Genesis 1, that God created things out of nothing. Um, it's a different word than he used of, of forming Adam from the dust, kind of like a potter or a sculptor. This is literally God builds a woman. That's the word. He's built. Uh, it's the same word that's used repeatedly in the Old Testament of building houses or building cities or building the temple. So it's the word for, for build. And so God builds woman. And he does an amazing job. <laughs> he builds this woman. And, and so now, now Adam comes out of the anesthesia. Now, I don't know if some of you, I know some of you, I've seen this uh, People come out of anesthesia, and I've done it before too. And I hear it's not fun to come out of anesthesia. It, now it's it's not better to stay asleep forever, but it, it is not fun to wake up from that. But it is very funny for everybody else around you. Uh, it can be, but here Adam wakes up, and this has to be the best awakening ever. Adam didn't wake up to find Eve simply just kind of laying on the ground beside him or something like that. He, he wakes up, he looks up to see Eve, and she's not in a wedding dress. She is naked. It's in the text, verse 25. Um, and God's bringing her to him. So you, you have to appreciate this beautiful symbolism here in, in the text. God, God made her from Adam's rib while he slept, and God now brings her to Adam. And so it's as if in the garden, God, God is both presenting the bride and He's officiating over the wedding here, the marriage. And so here's God who in a sense says, who gives this woman to be married? And then He steps back beside Eve and says, I do. And, and, and God presents the bride and officiates over this wedding. Now, I, I'm, I realize we can't press our wedding customs into the text. That's not my point. But make no mistake about it. What is happening here in this, in this garden is that God Himself is actually joining them together in holy marriage. That is what's happening. And we know that because that's what Jesus tells us is happening. In the New Testament, in Matthew 19.6, after quoting this passage in Genesis 2, uh, Jesus says, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so right there in the beginning, first man, first woman, God's joining them together in marriage. Adam now has this corresponding helper, a wife, a counterpart. Now, don't disdain this. It is is beautiful. There is nothing whatsoever demeaning about this. God in His wisdom and His sovereignty and His goodness and grace, He he knows exactly what Adam needs and then He makes that when He makes woman. This This is beautiful. And then we have the first recorded human words in all history. And, and those first human words are a poem. That's incredible to me. Um... And you've got a lot to live up to, husbands. <laughs> the first husband was a poet. Um, but here's what he says. He starts, this at last. Now just stop there. Um, the, the New Living Translation, I think, is very good here and helpful here. And it's this. They translate this. 
At last! Exclamation point. The man exclaimed. (laughs) Because this is an exclamation at the beginning of verse 23. When God brings the woman to Adam, Adam looks at her, and in the original Hebrew, it's literally like, Hapa! Or, Hapa Hapa! We can get our English translation. I'm stretching that a little bit, but it's something like that. It, 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 he's just absolutely thrilled. You, you, you've, got, you've got to see this in the text. Adam, you just think of what he, he spent six days, he's spent much of day six naming these animals, realizing he has no counterpart, and he goes to sleep, and he goes to sleep aware of that need for companionship that hasn't been filled, and he wakes up and God says, angels cue the music, and then God walks the bride to Adam, and in his excitement, he says, at last, yes! Wow! I mean, it is. It's something like that. It's an exclamation. I mean, at, at weddings, I've, I've really only done one, officiated one wedding in its, in its entirety, in Charlie and Megan's. And, and, but as a pastor, you get the best position in the church or in the field or wherever you get married. Uh, <laughs> but but you, I get to stand here and the groom's here and, 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 and then the music starts and the back doors open. And I get to see her. I get to see him. I get to see him see her. <laughs> and then that, that's, you, you, can, you, can, you, can, uh, you can know why the Hebrew text says what it says here, why Adam says this. It's just, it's just glorious. It's, it's beautiful. And then Adam breaks out in this poetry. And it's a poem. I mean, if, if you read it, again, we're so familiar with it, and we've heard it quoted at weddings, so we kind of have it in that context. But you... If you didn't know that, you might say this doesn't sound very romantic at first. Uh, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But but it's saying more than you may even be thinking. Uh, he's not just saying this. She's got one of my ribs, so I guess we're connected now, or something like that. Uh, you got part of me, okay? No, it's a statement of relationship. That's part of it. They're connected. They are one flesh. But it's more than that. It's, it's a technical, it's technical language and put in poetic form, but it's, it's covenant language in Scripture. It's flesh and bone in, in multiple places in the Old Testament. And when covenants are, 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 are made, there's this language of flesh and bone is used. It's a pledge of loyalty, this covenant statement of commitment to his wife. And so Adam in poetic form is saying, this this is the one that I'm going to be in mutual, loyal bond with. This is the one. And then Adam says, She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Or she shall be called Isha in Hebrew, for she was taken from Ish. And so this, this, is this, this circle is completed now. This need for companionship. This need for a corresponding helper that was not good. That when he was lacking it, now it's, it's presented and, and it's filled in marriage. And it's beautiful. And so it brings, that brings us to this last little piece of the pre-fall puzzle that we can put on the board and see it in its entirety. And, and it's in verses 24 and 25. We, we just see this God-designed nature now for their marriage. What is this marriage? What are the elements of this marriage? 
And so, verse 24, it's, it, Adam's not speaking any longer. Now, I, I most agree that this is going back to Moses under the inspiration of the Spirit, giving narration to this account in verse 24. But verse 24 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, you see, three Three aspects of, 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 of marriage here. Three elements of this God-designed marriage and its nature. Uh, one, you see it's a, it's a primary relationship. Two, it's a permanent relationship. And three, it's a very intimate relationship. Let's look at those quickly together. So first, marriage is designed to be a primary relationship or an exclusive relationship. It, it, he says, man shall leave his father and his mother. Now the word leave there, it's, a, it's, it's actually the word that's translated other places as forsake. And so we've, we've even, you've heard that, hear that in vows sometimes, uh, forsaking all others. But often, uh, again, it's translated in the, in the Pentateuch in terms of what Israel's not to do towards the Lord. You're not to forsake the Lord. It's the same word, you're not to leave. And so, now clearly leave or forsake, it's, it's used in a relative sense here. Um, so it's, it, you don't leave, you don't forsee, forsake absolutely or utterly or, or completely. This doesn't have to do with abandoning parents and cutting them off or uh, contact with them or relationship with them. That's not, the, that's not the point. But what he is saying is a man for the sake of his wife, though, is to leave the strong bond of his parents and unite with his wife. To leave her. To leave them. In other words, the husband's obligations to his wife now take precedent over his obligations to his parents or anyone else. And the same for the wife. So the, these, those former familial commitments are now superseded by this new God-formed relationship. The priority now, their obligation now, is not to mom and dad, but to one another. Husband and wife. Let me say Parents. Uh, we have young children. We, we should encourage these priorities even in our children, even when they're young. And, and to, to, to talk like this. Tell them there's coming a day when mom and dad will no longer be first. Um, there may be, and not that they all will get married, but there may be a husband or wife, and he or she then will be, will be first. And so instill that in them. And then when the time comes, live up to it. I know it's a harder thing to do. And so raise your children with a view to, to releasing them uh, to the care of their spouse, and if the Lord wills. So, so this marriage relationship, it's primary. It's not the parent-child relationship. They're to leave father and mother, be joined to spouse. And that's the second aspect of this. Marriage is designed to be a permanent relationship. A permanent relationship. It's, it's to hold fast to his wife. And that, that the word cleave, and so we talk about leaving and cleaving. Le- this is the counterpart or the corollary to the leaving. And so the hold fast. And it, the idea of this word suggests two things. One, passion, and two, permanence. Now, both of those ideas are tied up in this, in this Hebrew word. So there's this deep affection and love in the one you cling to, tenaciously hold to them, cling to them. But also the idea is that you're, you're permanently attached to that person. So this is a God-sealed bond. We, we generally, again, we, we talk about leaving, cleaving, holding fast to this is It represents this covenant commitment that exists between a husband and a wife. 
And we know that because repeatedly this word is used in the scriptures again in that covenant in, in those covenant passages, it's in, that, it's in that realm between God and Israel. So this is what Israel was supposed to do in response to her covenant Lord. Deuteronomy 10.20 You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and hold fast or cleave to Him. And by His name you shall swear. And so this is what, it's what the marriage relationship is built on. It's built upon this this commitment, this, it's not simply romantic feelings, though romantic feelings are very important in a marriage, but the, the, the house of marriage, it's framed with the two-by-fours of the marriage, are, are, it's this commitment of the will, built upon the solid foundation of the grace of God. But this, is, this is the structure of the marriage. It's grace-wrought commitment that holds the marriage together through the difficult times that invariably come. And then the last element here uh, that, that God gives us of, of this, this marriage as it was designed in the garden. Again, before the fall, messed everything up. It, it, marriage was designed by God to be this intimate relationship. Intimate relationship. They shall become one flesh. One flesh. There's this intimate unity. Physical, emotional, relational solidarity. And so one flesh, I think we understand this, obviously reflects the idea of, of a sexual relationship, sexual union. But it's more than that. It's this total person intimacy. The sexual relationship, it reflects the, the deep bond of the marriage relationship. That's the way it's designed. In other words, sexual harmony must be built on the foundation of primary, exclusive, permanent uh, commitment, relationship that is growing in trust and openness and oneness. It's, it's not, it's, so it's got to be in that context. And then verse 25, we, we read these stunning words that sum this up. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, nakedness in the Old Testament, I, I realize in our culture, I mean, nakedness is sort of everywhere. It's flaunted. And, and I, we, we, we still, the image of God in us, we, 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 we are naturally, there's shame associated with nakedness because of the fall. Uh, uh, but but in that in that early Hebrew culture, nakedness, as you see it throughout Scripture, it's, it's shame, it's, it's um, uh, even poverty, it's used of poverty, it's used of the, in, in those kind of, of settings, embarrassment, and, and so it's commonly associated with that. So here is, is this man and this woman in the garden, in that perfect environment, and they're both naked, and this is the kicker, they're unashamed. They're unashamed. You, again, you, you think of those first readers in the wilderness there, and, and here they are, and this would be just astonishing. The New English translation, I, I think, is helpful here. The man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. I think that little adversative is, is really helpful. So they felt no shame. Why? Because they had nothing to hide. They had perfect integrity in their relationship. There was nothing to hide. There was no fundamental barrier that yet existed between them. And, and so there, there was no sin that had entered into the world, into their relationship. Now, we, we know nothing of what that would be like. 
But it is true, and I think many of you can testify this experientially. Even after the fall, part of that original transparency can be regained. Not all of it, by any means. But in the security of a lifetime commitment, a husband and a wife can, can relax and feel comfortable together, and the walls can begin to come down. Um, and there can be this closeness and openness. You're recapturing some of what Adam and Eve experienced in the beginning. Now they weren't naked and unashamed for very long. Um, This perfect marriage and this idyllic environment enjoying the unhindered presence of God, it is about to be radically corrupted. And that's the world we live in. The, The gravel is about to be thrown into the machinery. But it's important to see God's design. And, it, and the goodness of it. Before the, before the ruin that necessitates the redemption, which is where we're going to be going through this series in, of Genesis, before that, it was very good. It was God's estimation at the end of day six. It was very good. Man, one man is male and female in this union. Well, let me let me give in the in the minutes we have remaining here. Just I, I want to get make a, a three concluding kind of implications and statements, um, putting our arms around this passage and bringing it into our own context. One, I, I, I want us to talk briefly about equality and distinction within marriage. I think we see this, and it's important for us to see this in this passage. This is God's design. There's this fundamental equality in personhood between the man and the woman. And yet, they are gloriously different. They're different in appearance. I mean, Adam Adam saw, no doubt when he saw Eve, it was clear she was like him, but she was different from him in a wonderful way. They were different in makeup. They were different in, in roles, as we see, already from the beginning. Not, not better or worse, not lesser or greater, not inferior or superior, but equal and complementary. Now, I realize that even that is not popular today to talk like that. And there are folks, even in Christian circles, who say that the fundamental distinction between uh, genders and gender role divisions, it, it, it's a result of the curse, not creation. So you'll see that in a lot of writing today. But I don't think that that really aligns with the testimony of Scripture. Now, are there effects of the curse on gender role distinctions? Yes. You better believe it. We have all kinds of problems that are because of this. But all kinds of corruption, all kinds of distortions of God's good design enter after the fall. And we reap the awful benefits of that. But, but creating man and woman equal in personhood, yet distinct in roles, it happens before the fall in creation itself. Now please listen very, very, very carefully. Because this is, this is I've seen so many Christians get derailed when we start talking about these things. Is male headship in marriage is not male domination in marriage. Please understand I think many of the strong reactions uh, from Christians, they're not against actual biblical male headship, but it's to unbiblical male domination. 
that gets that, that wears the tries to wear the costume of of biblical male headship and uses the same language, but it's totally different, categorically different from what the Bible is teaching. Ray Ortland Jr., I think this is helpful, uh, I think a helpful comment in, on this. He says, he said, when truth is abused, listen, when truth is abused, a rival position that lacks logically compelling power can take on psychologically compelling power. You get that? And I think that's so true. Not just in this area, but in so many areas. That the arguments to, to do away with the concept of equality in personhood and yet distinctions in roles, not in fear of spirit, but distinction in roles, that, the arguments against that, they really don't have solid biblical footing. But there, there is psychologically compelling power to those arguments when, when, when it's reacting to unbiblical male domination. So Orlin goes on, but male domination is a personal moral moral failure, not a biblical doctrine. And so, we want to see the biblical doctrine. And again, this biblical doctrine is reflective of us being made in God's image as male and female. We, it's, it's, we're image bearers of God. This is, why it, this is why it's true of us. Within the Holy Trinity itself, we talked about this earlier, there's this equality within the members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, Spirit, all co-existing, co-eternal, co-equal. This is how we speak in Trinitarian language, and if we miss any of those, we mess it all up. And so the Father is not more God than the Son. The Son's not more God than the Spirit. And, and, and so Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equally God, equally sharing in divine attributes of God. And so there's no, no better or worse within the Trinity. And yet as far as the function of the God's head goes, the Father's role is different from the Son's role. And the Son's role is different from the Spirit's role. And not only that, the Son willingly subordinates Himself to the Father. And the Spirit willingly subordinates Himself to the Father and the Son. And, and, and so the, the, there's this fundamental difference in roles. The Father didn't die on the cross for you. The Son did. The, the Holy Spirit wasn't raised from the dead. The Son was. The, the, it's not Jesus who was sent forth on the day of Pentecost. It was the Spirit who was sent forth. Jesus didn't always do the Spirit's will. He always did the Father's will. So, so you see these distinctions that God has revealed in Scripture, but in no way could you say within the Trinity that there is... There is this gap of equality or something like that, that better or worse or inferior, superior. Not, not even close. So though, you, though they're co-equal, co-eternal, co-existing, they have different roles and functions, and that includes the willing sub- subordination to each other. So brothers and sisters, the, the Bible presents to us God's design for man as male and female, equal in person, yet different in roles. And it's not just rooted in creation. It's rooted in the eternal Godhead Himself. And so, male headship in home, in the home, and I would say also God, God designed male leadership in the church the way that God's designed it, not always the way that we, it's reflected in, in our churches, but it, but it has nothing to do with men being better or smarter or more capable or more gifted I mean, I could go. I could ask all of the men to raise their hands whose wives are smarter than they are, 
and I would be like both hands. I mean, it has nothing to do with that. That's not the distinction that, that God makes. Um, there, there's nothing demeaning about God's design. It's beautiful. It's magnificent. And the differentiation we make in roles must be determined by God in Scripture. You, you understand that? We can't allow the culture to, 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 to dictate that for us. We can't allow our own traditions to dictate that. We can't allow our personal opinions or just inference to, to we start drawing these lines where God hasn't drawn them. And churches get in trouble here. We mess up and we've got to check ourselves against Scripture. We can, take, we can take God's instructions for the husband's headship in the home and God's instructions to men and women regarding leadership in the church, for instance, and we can, we can create our own uh, kind of extra-biblical teachings on these things. Kind of like the Jewish Midrash where the rabbis, they take God's law and they, they write all of these other rules to protect God's law from ever, be, ever being violated with probably good intention, but it becomes this complicated mess that Jesus just rails against. When he comes. And, and so it's a dangerous, slippery slope. We need to joyfully embrace the God-ordained distinction of roles and, and equality within those roles, but not create these layers of man-made traditional distinctions. That's a big difference. And so we need a culture of... I think it's so clear in this text that we, we culture of respect for men and women in the church and in homes... Equal in personhood, complementing one another in their distinctive roles. We are, we are made to need one another. Again, the entrance of sin into the world, it messed it all up. The battle of the sexes begins in Genesis chapter 3. And so we, we, we see all of the consequences of that. But the fault is not from God's design in the beginning. That's what I want you to see. Another implication... Uh, quickly, it's, it's just the blessings of marriage. This is the part I'm, I, I love this part. I mean, that lovely lady sitting over there, I'm about to embarrass. Uh, I'm like, Lord, even after the fall, marriage is, is beautiful. Even with sin's entrance. It's a good thing. And, and so to be sure, because of the nature of the marriage relationship and the intimacy and, the, and the, the, the one flesh relationship, it has the capacity to bring the absolute greatest sorrows in life. And I know, I know some, of the, some of you have experienced that. But it also it has the capacity to bring some of the greatest and sweetest joys in life. It does. There are wonderful gifts that come from marriage. There's friendship and shared life together and the gift of children and grandchildren that families are experiencing now and, and, and sexual intimacy. I mean, just take, take that. Uh, now, I just thought this was great. J.I. Packer, some of you know, he's a theologian. He's 92 years old now, Anglican theologian. I don't tend to think... Um, he, he doesn't come to mind when I think of sexual intimacy and his writings... <laughs> But I came across this, and, and it, he's most known for his book, Knowing God. It's probably his most famous work. But he, has, he wrote a book called Knowing Man. And in it, in it, he says, if procreation is commanded, then sexual relations are commanded. And, he, and then he says, and sex, among other things, is fun. <laughs> yeah, Packer said that. <laughs> anyway, I just thought I got a kick out of that. But for married couples, the, the, this is one of the blessings, the joy of sex. It's commanded by God for our good and enjoyment. 
It's good. It's his good design. It's not dirty. It's good. And it's good in the sight of God. And, and again, enjoy within the boundaries that God has set. Absolutely. Human beings have a tendency to ruin all kinds of God's good gifts. And sex is probably one of the most ruined of those. And we see that and the awful effects of that. But it's given by God to be an absolutely beautiful blessing to husbands and wives. And so we just see the testimony of Scripture. And, and what I want you to hear today is it just... Proverbs 5.18 Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Oh, find joy. Proverbs 18.22 He who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives favor from the Lord. Or Ecclesiastes 9.9 Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Now, he's vain in the context of vaporous life. It's, it's here and it's gone. That he's given you under the sun. He, So just as sure as we've been commanded not to commit adultery, we have been commanded to enjoy life with the wife whom you love. And I I thank God for the gift of my wife, and God knew exactly what I needed. Oh, did God know what I needed. I mean, and and, and He's given a a wonderful gift to me. And so I just rejoice in in that precious gift this morning. You speak to husbands. Husbands, your, your marriage will improve dramatically if you would treat your wife as God's gift to you. It will make a huge difference. And it goes both ways. But I, now again, singles, let me just one more note to you. If you don't have a husband or wife, God understands that. And He generously provide, will provide the companionship you need. So I don't want to say that. But, but for those with a spouse, rejoice in God's gift to you of a husband and a wife. Last, last implication is the mystery of marriage. The mystery of marriage. So a tempter is going to enter the scene next week and, and will threaten this utopian marriage that we've been looking at today. Um, and from then on, marriage is going to be very, very, very messy. And we can testify that. But even so, Scripture says that our marriages have this glorious purpose to them. And it goes beyond the simple need for companionship. Our marriages exist, we know from Scripture, to be this living drama of, of Christ's relationship to the church. And so all so so we all not only we not only just have this need for human companionship, there's this there's this need, this deep need for companionship, and it is provided to us in Christ. And so fifteen hundred years after Genesis two was written, Paul wrote about marriage in Ephesians five, and we read this earlier. And in Ephesians 5, verse 32, he says, This mystery is profound. It's profound. It's deep. And we say, no kidding. <laughs> your, your marriage, yes, marriage is a mystery. And some of you say, I've been married to this woman for 15 years. And I, and I, I still don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and I, I, it's a mystery. I, it's a total mystery. That, that may be true, but that don't, that's not what Paul's saying when he says this is a profound mystery. Paul uses mystery not to describe something mysterious or hard to understand. He uses it to describe a truth that was once hidden in the past, but now it's been revealed by God. And so Paul, Paul likes this word. He uses it several times in the book of Ephesians alone. and calls the church this mystery, Jew and Gentile together in this body, and, and the summing up of all things in Christ. This is this mystery. And, but here, he says this is a profound, a great mystery. 
Only time he uses that adjective with it. And it's not, it's not marriage itself, because marriage has been revealed plainly in Genesis, and this is not the first time marriage is being taught in Ephesians 5. It's not marriage itself, it's, what, it's the truth that marriage is pointing to, was designed to point to. That's the mystery. The picture that it gives of Christ and His church. That's, that's what was hidden and is now revealed. So in other words, God didn't create this union between Christ and His church, and He wasn't looking around thinking, well, what could I compare it to? Ah, marriage, that's good. I'll take marriage, something that's already there, and I'll, I'll make that the standard for how I'm going to relate to the church and, and instruct on it. It's the opposite. This is what it's saying. In the annals of eternity... God created human marriage on the pattern of Christ's relationship to His church. That's profound. God sent His Son to to marry this imperfect, flawed, messy, sinful bride, the church. He came and He did what Adam failed to do for Eve. He came and He laid down His life for us. He came not to dominate us, and not lord himself over us, but to free us. He came not to manipulate us, but to serve us. He came not to bully us, but to love us. He came to protect us. And that marriage then becomes the standard. Not just the standard, but the hope for all our marriages and relationships. We forgive each other. Why? Because He has forgiven us. We love each other because He loves us. We live and if necessary die for one another because Christ lived and died for us. He laid down His life for us. We serve each other because He served us and gave His life to be a ransom for us. And so our our marriages then, they should be this this pulsating, gospel-rich illustrations of what it means to have life in Christ. That's the design. Therefore, we need the, the need for grace in marriage is constant in all of life. And so we've we got to look to God. We've got to run to the cross. We've got we to depend upon the Holy Spirit. We've got to rest in, on Christ and in His grace in our marriages. We don't, we don't need to have, and we don't need to portray on social media or in any, on any other way, we don't need to portray little perfect little Pollyanna marriages. It's not it. But, but nitty-gritty, messy marriages, yet they're platforms for the, for the powerful gospel of grace to just shine forth. That's the design. And it just puts the attention on Jesus. And we say the only reason there's any good in this marriage is because of Jesus. That's, that's where we come back to. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, may, may Your grace be magnified in our marriages as we await the consummation of the ultimate marriage feast between the bride and the Lamb. What a day we have to look forward to, Father. We thank You for that glorious hope that's set before us and we thank You for all that You provided now um, for, for companionship and for many for marriage. And I pray, Lord, I pray that 
in all that's been said today, I, I, I pray for everybody with, with all of their unique set of circumstances and expectations and difficulties and joys and, and regrets. And uh, God, take by your Holy Spirit the Word that's been opened and, and use it for good in lives. And all for the glory of your name, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.